Well, if you would, please turn to Psalm 19 for our passage today, our verse-by-verse exposition of Psalm 19. And my goal for you today is to leave the Psalms wanting more. Leaving the Psalms realizing how much they can have you contemplate life and how much they can have you confess your sin and how much they can have you praise the Lord for all that he has given you. The Psalms are breaking out into five books, and the first book is not, you know, uh, the first sequentially, but they have different themes. And this psalm today is a psalm of praise towards God, a psalm that we would learn to live acceptable and innocent before God. So I will read Psalm 19 for us, verse by verse, verses 1 through 14, and then we will discover what's all in this psalm. Please look at the beginning, the small subscription in verse 1 is actually the beginning of the first verse in Hebrew. For the choir director, a psalm of David, speaking to Gary and to Kyle and to all those who are involved in worship, he's saying, be directed towards this, direct our hearts towards this. He says, a psalm of David, a set of praises put to music. Verse 1 again, Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge, and there is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun." which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There are seven natural wonders of the world. And we could probably find many more wonders, but the seven natural wonders consist of the Grand Canyon, pretty close to home, the Northern Lights, the Particatin, which is a Mexican um, volcano, which is a vast measure, Victoria Falls, Mount Everest, the Great Barrier Reef, but one in particular is very close to my heart. It's the harbor of Rio de Janeiro. The harbor of Rio de Janeiro is the largest harbor by volume of water in the world. It is also filled with vast mountain peaks that rise right up out of the ocean. Sugarloaf Mountain, you can take a cable car, Ana Luisa and I did on our first date, 
to the Sugarloaf Mountain, and you can eat up there and look at the beautiful surrounding. It's incredible. You can look at the Christ Redeemer that they put on top of another mountain to show you the reflection of being predominantly pioneered by Christians. It leaves you breathless thinking, maravilloso. How marvelous are the works of the Lord. It is a beautiful thing, and in fact, the harbor is not even as much of a harbor as it is a flowing river. That's why they call it Rio de Janeiro, the river of January. Now, as we look at this and we think about the harbor of Rio or Mount Everest, we never think, man, what guy created that? We leave being awestruck and wander with our Lord and our God and our Creator. We leave thinking this is marvelous of His works and not of man's. And that's exactly what we see here in Psalm 19, that there is a place for natural revelation. In verses 1 through 6, you will see that natural revelation reveals God's power, His great power. And in verses 7 through 14, you will see that there's even a greater power behind special revelation. A greater power that reveals God's attributes and reveals how we apply those attributes in our lives. A few key indicators that gives us the structure in this Hebrew psalm. It's a beautiful thing, Hebrew poetry. It's structured out kind of like a song. It's got courses and verses and subverses, and it's structured all for you there in the DNA of the verse. And we see that here in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, with the indication of God in verse 1. El is the word. We get El from Elohim, from other areas. It's the Hebrew word for God, a general sense of God. It's the God of creation in Genesis 1 through 11, ultimately used there. Only used one time in verses 1 through 6, which gives us the expression of God in natural revelation. But then in verse 7, we see a transition to Yahweh. He steps outside of creation, and now he talks about the special revelation of God, the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God of Israel and of us in the new covenant. That's why verses 7 through 14 are breaking out in the Word of God, special revelation and the attributes of it and our application of it. And each one of those Yahwehs is accompanied with an attribute of God's Word. You'll see each attribute displayed accompanied with the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, promising God. But we'll first start in verse 1 through 6, that natural revelation reveals God's power. But what about His power? We look at verse 1, and we see that God's power is incredible. Look again with me at verse 1. For the choir director, to the one who's directing would be better read, a psalm of David, poetry to music, teaches us this, that the heavens are telling of God. The heavens are telling in an incredible, overwhelming, great way of God's glory. Telling is really actually the word for detailing. It's a detailed account of all that exists in God's incredible nature. And the glory is telling of one that's a weighty nature. You go to the harbor of Rio or to the Grand Canyon or the Northern Lights and you don't stand tall in your might. You stand awed with a weight upon you of God's glory. Because that's what it has revealed. That's what it has detailed in its account of history. It's a sense of experience that we cannot understand with words. It's a sense of experience that's too weighty for us to fully comprehend. That's why people visit so often these natural wonders of the world. 
They're declaring and telling of God's glory. But they're also telling and declaring the evidences of the works of his hand and not ours. Look again at verse 1. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That word declaring is actually the idea of the evidence behind this. That there is an authority behind it all. That God's nature, his natural revelation, has made us understand that there is an authority behind natural revelation and it's not man. And although science observes who the authority is, it doesn't overtake the creator. Creation is never to be worshipped more than the creator. It's evidence placed right in front of our eyes. It's to confront us with the authority of the world behind it all, before it all, and through it all. We have to understand that he's declaring his authority through his expanses. Now, we look at this and we say, well, he's telling of the glory and he's declaring of the work is he saying two different things here and in hebrew poetry there are multiple forms of parallelism but this is one of parallel synonymous parallelism like train tracks on the same path what we understand here is that they're saying the same thing in two different ways and that is this that god is incredible in his strength and power We leave verse 1 and we understand it implies huge applications to our prayer life and our application that we leave natural revelation and we don't think, man, I'm great. We think God is supernatural. He can do it and I can't. We believe in sudden creationism, as theologians call the six-day literal creation in 24-hour periods that God did it like that. We don't leave thinking of explanations scientifically of God's glory revealed in his expanses and in his heavens. Instead, we worship him as the creation. We don't overtake the place of the creator. Now, there's certain things that Christians say, well-meaning, but at the same time, we have to check ourselves with if we really are accurate. No, that changed a little bit. (laughs) We have to understand that we can't say, I believe the Bible and I don't believe science. I know what we mean by that, but what the Bible is saying here in Psalm 19, that is God is behind the science. As we see science and observe all that he showed us, we leave worshiping him. Now, I was reading a pocketbook of answers in Genesis this week, and one of the things that it said that Christians use that is not a good evidence for us is that we believe the Bible, not science. What we should say instead is that we believe the Bible, we don't believe scientism. Scientism is where it takes that exercise of observing God declaring his glory and observing God declaring the work of his hands and it ascribes it to man's intellect. It makes it a presupposition on the heart to say, I will no longer submit to the authority of God. It's when man takes the role of God in his creation rather than submitting to God as authority. It's when man says, God didn't do it and we can show you how it was done. Instead, we need to leave creation saying, God did it, not I, and he is significant and not I. And when we leave creation thinking that, we have the appropriate effect of natural revelation upon our heart and worship. But as Christians, we can't give over in Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 11 is literal, no matter whether the theological professor of Asbury Seminary says otherwise, or Westmont Theological Seminary, or even Wheaton. It's not poetic genre. 
Psalm 19 here says that the heavens are declaring that God suddenly created it. And it is for us to fall on our knees and worship. Well, we understand that natural revelation and, and pro, provides a display of God's incredible power, but also look at verse 2. It ascribes a display of God's continuous power throughout all time. Look with me at verse 2 again. It says, day, and really it would be better translated, after day, pours forth speech. Night after night reveals knowledge. What's he saying here? He's usually uh, referring to things in the perfect tense, but here it's the imperfect tense. And what he's saying here is that it never is going to end its continual flow of telling God's story, of his continuous power. That time doesn't stop on the revelation of God and his nature. He's saying not only time continuously stops, but it gushes forth. It's a geyser of God's continuous power. We have to understand that God is revealing himself, declaring himself continuously, pouring forth speech. He's never stopping or never not telling. He's like a child in the car on the way to vacation that won't stop speaking. He's got something to say. Nature never stops having us address who God is and leaving it thinking, man, how infinite is God? How sovereign is God? How wise is God? How beautiful is God? All of his attributes are continuously gushing forth through his creation. He makes it known and declares it. And that knowledge is exactly what we're after. We're after a knowledge of God. But what knowledge exactly? It's a commanding authority that is continuously displayed in nature to understand the knowledge of God's attributes. You should know, leaving creation, that he is infinite. You should know, leaving creation, that he is sovereign. You should know, leaving creation, that he is wise, that he is beautiful. And we can never place man above God in any of those situations. And no matter a war, there's never been a prison sentence, never been a divorce, never been a death, never been a dispute, never been a cancer survivor or a cancer death, never been an argument, never been a debate that has ever stopped the oceans from moving or the lightning from striking, or the wind from blowing, or the sun from rising, or the time from ticking, because God's world is on God's time. And we've got to understand that we leave it praying and applying, saying, thank God for constantly reminding me of who you are in your creation, despite me in my circumstances. This gives incredible assurances to our lives as we go through the trials of life, the temptations of life, that God is not only incredibly power, he's continuously powerful despite my time under the sun. He's infinite, he's sovereign, he's beautiful, he's wise, and we can never ascribe that to man, only do the glory to God. Well, natural revelation is not only incredible in its power it's not only continuous in its power in verse two it is universally powerful in verse three through the beginning of verse four look again with me at verse three it says this speech is non-existent words are non-existent their voice is not heard their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world Really, the end of verse 3 kind of tells us what he's talking about here. The voice is not heard. It, 
would literally be read, a better translation, without being heard is their voice. God doesn't need language, and he doesn't need barriers of territory to reveal who he is to a certain people. Everyone, everywhere, is being declared the glory of God because his power is universally behind all nature. There's no words and no speech behind anything. There's no language behind nature. Even though 52 million people in the last 10 years have visited the Grand Canyon, they have stand, stood there and stood in awestruck wonder with their jaw dropped. And not once has the Grand Canyon reached back out in a language that's audible and said, you know who I am. But they're left breathless. Because without words, without language, and without boundaries, and without nations, God declares everyone, everywhere, who he is. That he's universal in his power. So that tells us it doesn't matter if you came from Timbuktu or came from the United States. You know enough to fall on your knees and realize that God of the Bible is universal in his power. Not dependent upon your circumstances or the way you were raised up. But he's universal in telling you his attributes of authority, of infinite wisdom. And we can be sure that everyone everywhere is accountable to this sovereign God, this wise God, this beautiful God. They're without excuse, as it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. They know God through his nature. And they're without excuse. They are judged through creation. One of the chief issues of mankind is that they look at nature and they worship the creation. They don't leave worshiping the creator. And we have to make sure we don't make that same mistake ourselves. Instead, we want to leave the universal power behind God and worship the universal power, which is God, not us. Or not some philosophical reasoning like the Lagos in the early church times. We have to understand that our place is to reflect not only the role of natural revelation in revealing his incredible power in verse 1, there's continuous power in verse 2, there's universal power in verse 3 through 4, through all the ends of the earth. But now, at the end of verse 4 through 6, he uses an illustration to tell us of his dominant reach in the power. Look at verse 4. See, the end, starting with in them, all the way through verse 6. In them, he's referring back to the heavens and the expanse. He has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It's rising from one end of heaven, one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. What's he saying here? Well, he's using an illustration to convey one theme. Youthful dominance is revealed within creation. Youthful dominance. Where do we get that from? Well, we understand that God represents the sun as a glorious bridegroom here, and the sun goes to bed at night, as does a soldier, a young man, strong man, at a wartime, he'll go to bed to his chamber and rest in the morning, but as he comes out, or rest at night, and then as the morning, and he comes out, he comes out with strength, with his belt intact, with the sword, and his 
power ready for the war, and he breaks away from his chamber, and he's ready to run the race. He's ready to fight the war, and he's ready to go out into the world and have nothing in his way. He rejoices as a strong man to run his course, and through the sun, we understand it's the source of energy, of light, of knowledge. It illuminates us all things, and God is that way through his nature. His illuminating, youthful, dominant vigor into the world is a dominant one and not a weak one. That tells us that we have to not give in to the dominance of intellectualism. There's no science professor, there's no intellectualist, there's no man who can understand the logical absolutes of necessities of life that can greater display the dominant vigor of God revealed in his nature. It's just what lens are you looking at nature through? If you read a lot of Answers in Genesis material, you will see that they would talk about the presupposition that you have in the world. Is the lens that you look at nature through one that sees the Bible and then looks how nature explains it, or one that you're looking for the answers away from God. One that doesn't hold you accountable to that dominant power that God reveals in his nature. We also have to understand that we got to leave verses 4 through 6, the dominant reach of power, understanding that we need to tell everybody of this. We need to show them that God is dominant through his creation that he's greater than man, and that's revealed through his creation, that he is the source of life in all things, that vigor comes through him in our lives, and that we are responsible for knowing the true knowledge of God. we got to tell them of God. We were reading the TMAI devotional that was put together by all the missionaries, and it's a wonderful thing when you see the devotionals per day given by people that you know. And it's declaring the glory you know, among the nations is their theme. And we've got to be a part of that too here in Gilbert, Arizona, and as we go to other places. Well, we've got to ask ourselves, is natural revelation accomplishing what God asked it to accomplish through his incredible power, his continuous power, his universal power, and his dominant power in our lives? And as we transition to the Yahweh verses, the six times it's used, in verses 7 through 14, we understand the first five of those six are used to convey us attributes about the Word of God. What are the attributes of the Word of God? And in verses 7 through 14, why do we understand that the Word of God, the special revelation of God, has a far more glorious and far more powerful effect than the works of God, the natural revelation of God? What is it about them? We understand that the attributes of the Word of God as revealed in verses 7 through 9 are this. First, the law. Look with me at verse 7. The law of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. We understand first it's the law revealing a perfect correction in our life. You see, the law is a specific detailed account of God's word to God's people to show them how to be in right, perfect relationship with him. It reveals exactly how he can hold them blameless before him. It allows them to live life in a way that is not ambiguous but gives them the sense of understanding that they can be complete, mature, and continuous in their relationship with God. But there's one problem, that nobody can perfectly fulfill the law. 
we have to understand here that it's the idea of perfection to the law given in God's word. Here, it could be referring to the Torah or the whole law or us as we understand all the commands of God. But we have to understand that it is perfect and we are not. And it corrects our lives. Look there, restoring the soul. That idea of correction in our lives, it's the idea of putting you spiritually back into ranked, or back into rank. A military soldier that goes off rank needs to be put back into line, and that's what the law does for you and I. It spiritually puts you back into order. It restores you to liveliness and vitality and refreshes your soul. But how does this affect the saved person versus the unsaved person? How do we understand the law according to those? Well, we understand that without regeneration of the heart, there's no maturing in a person's life. We understand that the gospel to the unsaved person is that the word starts through regeneration, that only you can be saved through the word of God. That we have to understand that 2 Timothy 3.15 explains this as Paul writes to Timothy, that from a childhood you have heard you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Have you been regenerated by the word? You are without excuse according to natural revelation, and although there may be those in the world who have not reached by the word of God, you are not them. You have been reached by the word of God here and today and many other times maybe. And have you allowed the word of God to restore your soul for the first time? By faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by baptism, not by communion, not by works, not by any measure of your own doing, just like we had nothing to do with creation, we have nothing to do with salvation. And we understand that then and there, if you place your faith in Christ alone, that he will give you grace alone to save you once and for all. And if that has happened in your life, then you can partake of what the Word does here in restoring your soul for correction and maturity. For the saved, our idea is maturing in our faith. We can't be perfect, but we can be maturing as Christians. It's the idea of spiritual refreshment. It's ultimately impossible to be perfect according to the law. James 2.10 tells us that actually if we commit one error against the law, that we've committed all errors against the law. It was absolutely possible for Christ in Matthew 5.17-19 to fulfill the entire law, but we can take an effort towards maturing, and that is our aim. 2 Peter 1.3 It's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's our aim in Colossians 1.28, that we seek that maturity. That's our aim that as the result of God revealing creation through him, that we mature in the word. That every man, and that word for man also means women as well, we understand that we can have perfect correction in our lives through the word of God for the first time or continually as a result of sanctification. Well, the attributes of God's word is not finished it is continuing on, and it continues on not only in the perfect correction of verse 7, but verse 7 also speaks to the perfect wisdom. We see this here with the word testimony. Verse 7, the end of it, it says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Are you young and naive today? Or are you even old and naive, making the same mistakes you've made for many years? Are you trying to figure out how to conduct yourself according to life's many questions? 
You don't have to go through the issues that David did in the Bible or the issues the Apostle Paul did in the early set of his life or the issues that we have of many examples and testimonies in the Word. The fact of the matter is the testimonies of the Word of God are so that you become wise without having to make the same mistakes. That word for simple is the idea of young and naive. And the idea is that the Word of God is able to correct that in your life. The Word of God is reliable. Whenever we see this word testimony, it conveys the idea of God's covenant reliability. He never cut a covenant he couldn't keep. And when he cut the covenant in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, and he cut the animals in half, and he walked through it, he was basically saying, I would not be true and I would die and cease to be God if I wasn't able to keep this covenant. Oops, sorry. You guys see that I try to stay on track, so I time myself. Um, supposed to be done point one at that point. No. Um, but we understand that God is the covenant-keeping God of the Bible. That's the wisdom we can have. And we have that in application for elves. He was the covenant-keeping God to Noah in the Noahic uh, covenant in Genesis 9 that there would never be a flood to reset the earth again, we as Christians got to take back the rainbow. We know it's ours to claim. He's declaring his covenant with us in the rainbow. And the Abrahamic covenant, he's declaring that he will give Israel their land promises in the future. He will fulfill that as reliable. In the Mosaic covenant, the law that we could not keep was perfectly kept from Christ. And the Davidic covenant, that the king, the throne, ultimately revealed a need for Jesus as king in the New Testament and in the millennial reign. And that we have now the new covenant, one that is beautiful. And it's revealed in the word of God in Luke 22 and Jeremiah 31, one that we understand brings forgiveness of sins, that regenerates the heart, and that gives us an intimate knowledge of God so that we can be wise, yet we feel simple we got to understand that that is our goal, to apply the testimonies of Scripture, to not live them out in mistakes. But we can learn the easy way through the Word of God to make us, even though we're young and naive, wise. It happens through the Word of God. Well, the attributes of God's Word is, is not done yet. Not only is it perfect in its correction in verse 7 and perfect in its wisdom in verse 7, but in verse 8, you're going to be seeing in the beginning of verse 8, it's a step-by-step -step instruction to have joy. Look at verse 8, the beginning of it with me. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Yours may say precepts, but one thing that's for sure is this. One particular grammatical input here is that it's plural. There are many step-by-step -step instructions in the Word of God that allow us to navigate the roadmap that we're on to live this life under the sun. And though it feels like we're a hamster spinning on the same wheel, we have a purpose to navigate every single area, to stay on the right path as Joshua was told in Joshua 1.9, to not go to the right or the left, but stay on the straight and narrow path. The idea here is really straight line. And that although the outer utterances and influences of the world are there, we know that by the step-by-step -step instructions of the Word of God, we are to be knowing how to stay on the straight and narrow path. It's interesting, when I looked up this word, I thought, man, there's, this word's got to occur in the book of Proverbs, right? Well, the truth is, this particular use of the word is only occurring in the book of Psalms. In fact, all 24 occurrences are in the book of Psalms. 
many of them appearing in psalms that are about creation and about the word of God, specifically in Psalm 103 and Psalm 119, where we understand the role of God's creation and the role of his word, that it's sufficient, and that, honestly, joy can be provided when you obey the step-by-step instructions. It's not that we get joy by disobeying, just like the world didn't get joy by disobeying God's covenant-keeping in Joshua and Judges. There were cycles of degradation, cycles of obedience and disobedience, and that led to curses, and that led to blessings. But we are to get onto the path for blessings. That's what we're all about. So we've got to look at our lives right now and say, do I have joy? Am I struggling for joy? Am I looking at the plural step-by-step instructions in the Bible to live a life where it brings about the state of a rejoicing heart? Well, verse 8 continues on the attributes of God and it continues on telling us that not only is God's word perfect in its correction, not only is God's word perfect in its wisdom, not only does it give us a step-by-step instruction to joy in verse 8, but verse 8 continues on that its commandments are perfect authority for our discerning. It has the perfect sense of authority in our lives for discernment. Look again with me at the end of verse 8. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Are you looking for illumination in the wrong places? Many people get degrees in philosophy. They go to Oxford to study under the greatest astrophysicist or whatever, but you have the Word of God right in front of you to illuminate your eyes in order that you would have discernment for your life. You, no matter how young, how old, how new in the Lord or whatever, have the manual right here. And it's a pure manual. Commandments of the Lord are pure. It means there's no fault in them. There's faults in the understandings of the dissertations from the Ph.D. at Oxford, and there's faults in the understanding from Darwinism, but there's no faults in the understanding from Scripture. Are we going to the right source, the pure, unfaulty sources of Scripture? A true servant is enlightened by the truth under God's commandments. And that's what you and I have got to seek. We've got to seek illumination of truth and understanding from the Word of God first and foremost. Discernment comes from understanding that the authority of Scripture is the illumination in my application. And we got to look and say, do I look for wisdom in the wrong places? Am I looking for spiritual insight to life application from unbiblical counsel? Is my counsel clean? Do I have a comprehensive authority and understanding of Scripture? Is it the authority in my life? And then ultimately, we understand that that correction and that wisdom and that step-by-step instruction and that perfect authority for discernment in our life is established in verses 7 through 8. But now in verse 9, we see that there is a glorious attribute of perfect reverence. Two statements here. The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous together. Together, they are t- saying that you need to have perfect reverence for God. What is that? Well, it prompts a clean disposition towards God. It prompts the a desire to live righteously before God. It's like the Old Testament priests who had to live ceremonially pure 
to enter the presence of God, and you and I enter pure before our God and our Savior. The, our healthy fear of Him prompts righteousness. It says right here that they endure forever. The Word of God doesn't need anything in the world to be pure forever. The Word of God was not stained by sin in Genesis 3. The Word of God is completely clean. It's just that when we hold our lives up to it, can we say that it's enduring in our lives? Are we seeking to have that same ceremonial cleanliness in our lives as the priests in Leviticus? We're not under the Levitical law, but at the same time, there's something to learn from their desire to want to be right with God, to want to be clean with God. And the righteous word, as it says here, they are righteous altogether. The righteous word produces righteousness. That's what we understand here, that it's always right and we're always wrong. <laughs> and when we're living in line with the word, we can be seen right before God. The judgments of the Lord, no matter what decision he makes upon our lives, is correct. We can't question, we can't speak back to him. His judgments in Job were correct as just as they are correct in our lives. In fact, this is the exact kind of understanding we get from Psalm 103, verses 17 through 18. It says this, But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. There's conditional clauses in the Bible. And his righteousness to the children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. We've got to be doers of the word in order to receive a righteous standing before God. Do you have a healthy fear of God today? Are you let go and let God and he'll forgive? Because we see in the next verses how presumptuous that is. Well, we see the attributes of God consistent in his perfect correction and his perfect wisdom in verse 7. They're consistent in his perfect step-by-step -step instruction to us to bring joy in our life in verse 8 and his authority and discernment in verse 8. And we also see a perfect reverence in verse 9. Now, as we leave these perfect attributes of God from verses 7 through 9, we see that there's a halt in the word Yahweh up until the end. But what it turns now to is the application of the servant. Not only are there attributes, the attributes, the attributes of God mean there is application for the servant of God. So let us look here now at verse 10 through 14. First, verse 10 tells us to apply a special value to Scripture. It says this here, They, meaning the Scriptures, all that was entailed in the last verses, are more desirable than gold, yes, much fine gold, and more sweet than also honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. What's he saying here? We value Scripture more than the greatest money can provide and more than the greatest food savorings. When he says much fine gold, he's talking about the deep value we place on money and that Scripture is far greater. And when he talks about the drippings of the honeycomb, he's talking about the savorness of Scripture. Do you value and savor Scripture? Do you value and savor even its warnings and judgments in your lives? Is it conclusively truthful in your living? We should love it all, the correction and the encouragement. 
When he talks here, he kind of goes from a general sense of words to a specific sense of words. He refines his language. He goes from gold and honey to fine gold and to the drippings of a honeycomb. Now, when we talk here about steak, we want to talk about filet mignon. <laughs> and when we talk about money, we want to talk about the fine things money gives us. We have acquired tastes as Christian, but is there an acquired taste for the Word of God? Do we have an acquired taste for the nuggets that we look at in Scripture? Do we have an acquired taste for those verses that we've read a hundred times? Yet in that season of life, when we're reminded to go back to that verse, we read that same verse one more time, and there's an acquired taste there that we never saw before that prompts different taste buds that leaves us thinking, man, your word is more valuable than fine gold and then the drippings of honey. We have to have that acquired taste for Scripture. We have to understand that Scripture is more important than our favorite things in life. It should leave us with a savorness for Scripture to seek more of it. While we see that application to value Scripture especially, it's the highest priority in our life. And also in verse 11, we see an application to live according to the incentive system of Scripture. It's an application of incentive. Look at verse 11 with me. Also by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. We see here that warning is good for us. We have incentive to seek warning. Not only warnings, but abundance of warnings. It's an interesting thing here. The word warning is used in a reflexive tense. And what that is like is like when you are the subject performing the action and receiving the action of the same word. Meaning you have a boomerang effect of this. You go out and look for the warnings in scripture. And as a result of that, the warnings ring truthful and beneficial in your life. You're not only the benefactor, you're the beneficiary of the warnings of scripture. Before you're entailing into a particular predicament in your life, you look at the warnings that are given to David. You look at the warnings that are given to Solomon, the warnings that are given to Moses, and you live those out. You look and seek for them, and then you receive the benefit of obedience from them. You don't have to go into the consequences of that sin because you've received the benefit of that warning as you've sought it out. We have to understand that there's an abundance of curses in Scripture, but there's also an abundance of blessings for those who obeyed. And that's what it's saying here in the end of verse 11, in keeping them, there's great reward. There's an abundance of rewards for you if you live by the warnings of Scripture. And this invites you into the warnings of Scripture. There are so many warnings for you and I. You don't have to go through them like David or through them like Moses or through them like Solomon but you can receive the benefit of them by seeking them in Scripture. Well, not only do we understand that Scripture is to be applied with special value, it's to be applied with an incentive program, but it's to be applied in verse 12 by looking at it to scrutinize our sin. Look at verse 12. We use Scripture to scrutinize our sin. He says here in a rhetorical question, who can discern his errors? Who, guys? Man, nobody's going to talk back. <laughs> the Word of God, because it's from 
the voice of God. Theopneustos, 2 Timothy 3.16, it is literally the breath of God in his word to scrutinize our lives. And we leave it thinking, declare me innocent because according to your word, I'm not thinking I'm good off. I'm not thinking I'm bad off. I'm thinking I'm way off. And I need you to declare me innocent of thought. I need you to say, hey, you are blameless before me. You have received the righteousness of God, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and you are now allowed to enter into the presence of God. You know, many of us try to live according to penal codes. We try to live according to the ethical system of the world. There's many philosophers that are trying to talk about ethical moralism. But in the Word of God, we have a penal code. And there was only one who lived according to that penal code perfectly. And as we seek the penal code of God, we understand that we are to rest in the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, that he lived perfectly according to law, and that he atoned in our substitute for the law so that we could take his word and now be right with him in this life and know that through salvation and regeneration of the word of God, of the work of the Spirit, we will be right with him in the next life. We've got to ultimately seek God's penal code and realize that God is the penal substitutionary atonement for our lives. We know that he, through his word and through his voice, declares us innocent. You know, he uses a personal address here, declare me. Guys, it's personal for you and I in the word of God. Psalms is saying you can reach out to God in a way that's so intimate, that's so unique, that's so beautiful, that he is your God. As we see later on, he continues in that personal address, my rock and my redeemer. He's a personal God. So are you using the words of the Lord for innocence in your life? Are you praying to follow God, to be blameless before him for the first time or continually in your life, like 1 John 1, 9 seeks us to do? Well, not only are the attributes of the word here and we apply it through a consistent higher value or an incentive program or to scrutinize our sin or to pray for innocence in verses 13 through 14. That is our goal. Summarizes here with a summary to say, apply the word so that you can pray for innocence in your life. And he uses two concepts here to drive this home. It's the concept of unhealthy meditation and the concept of of healthy meditation. Look at with me at verse 13. Also, keep back your servant from premeditated sins. Yours might say presumptuous sins, but really the idea here is premeditated sins. He says, let not them rule over me. Are you a slave to a constant cognitive process that circles back in the same sin patterns over and over again? Are you controlled by the word or are you controlled by sin? Are you a slave to your fleshly appetites or a slave to the spirit of God and to the word of God? Are you seeking to consistently ride out the premeditated sins of unholiness with the meditated sins upon God's word as it looks here and tells us in verse 14? And only then will you be able to fulfill the later part of verse 13. It says, then... I will be blameless. He's talking about innocence. I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. 
You know, we can have great abundance, great rewards in our incentive program, or we can have great transgressions in our lives. Israel experienced that both. If you look at the book of Judges, really what's common there is a degradation cycle of the nation of Israel. When they obeyed the Lord's commandments, they received blessing. When they disobeyed, they received cursing, and then they went back in the cycle. But God was faithful all the meanwhile, and you and I need to work through the cycle to have great abundant reward rather than great abundant transgressions. And we do that by verse 14, letting the meditation, or the words of my mouth, be the meditation of my heart. Are you actively putting off premeditated sins and actively putting on meditated sins upon the word of God? Is God reigning true in your life through his word, through sermons, through Bible studies, through fellowship in the local church, through seeking wise counsel, greater than television programs? Or greater than social media? Or greater than your non-believers that you have in your life that bring input that's masked as wisdom? We've got to see that the world is after us 24-7 and just one sermon on a Sunday isn't enough. But the word of God has got to be dwelling richly in the meditation of our heart every single day. It doesn't mean you're one who reads the Bible 24 hours a day. But are you chewing on what you read in that day? Are you letting it go in your mind as you go to work? And meditating on it on your heart are the words of your mouth, the actions of your life reflecting what's meditating, what's sourced from the meditation in your heart. Actions come from the heart. That's why James 1 talks about the deception of sin, that we want to blame God for our sin, but really it was premeditated in our heart the whole time. And that's why you've heard it been said by Clay and others that when we sin, when we fall, we don't fall too far. And why is that? That's because when we fall, it's the action but what was really happening was a premeditation on the heart before that. We've got to ask ourselves, how far have I gone in premeditated sin, and how do I direct myself towards the appropriate putting on of meditation of the Word of God? And the ultimate aim for that is one thing. It's not to be right in the eyes of the church. It's not to be right in the eyes of the elders. It's to be acceptable in the sight of my rock and my Redeemer. It's personal. He says here in verse 14, let, meaning it's possible, guys. It's possible for you to be acceptable in the sight of God. Your personal rock and your personal redeemer. Rock is considering the strength of God when we're weak. Redeemer is considering the promise-keeping Redeemer of God, even when Israel was, Israel was weak. And we understand God as our strength and our personal Redeemer so that we can turn our premeditated sins to meditation of action in our heart so that God is on us at all times. we got to restrain ourselves from sin. we got to keep back. we got to resist the devil and he will flee. And we got to positively pursue righteousness and pursue an acquittal before God, a blamelessness, not according to the Levitical law, but according to our appreciation for grace, so that grace may abound in our lives. We've got to let this be possible in our lives today. So we've got to ask ourselves, am I praying for innocence? Am I premeditated more in sin or meditated more in righteousness? 
my meditating upon God's word enough to counter the meditations of the world in my life or the input of the world? And am I understanding that salvation only comes through the meditation upon Scripture? That God's word reveals far greater than God's work. That creation declares us judged before God, but God's word can declare us righteous before him. That is the answer to everything, and we sum this up by revisiting Colossians 1, verse 23. We've got to understand that this reaches far beyond the Old Testament. It reaches to Christ, that for from him and through him and all things are to him. He was before creation. He is the firstborn of creation, and it gives us this conditional commandment in verse 15 of Colossians 1, or sorry, verse 23 of Colossians 1. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, it's everlasting, remember, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation, remember, everywhere, everyone, under heaven, of which I am Paul, was made a minister, has natural or general revelation led to faith in special revelation led to faith in God's work for your redemption. And then now have you been sanctified through it so that you continue to call yourself acceptable before God, your rock and your redeemer. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of your works, for the beauty of your word and that we can be saved by the word of God, that we can be redeemed, that we can be innocent, that you've given us an incentive program, that we hold it like a savoriness in our homes and in our lives. We have taste buds for the word of God so that we can be innocent before you. Allow our hearts to worship once again, to meditate on your word once again through praise and through worship. In your name, amen.